Hi, folks. Be sure to visit my webpage at dr-history.com for over 440 true stories of the Old West. Also, now available on Amazon, my first book, a historical fiction based on true events entitled Coal Miner to Cowboy. The story of a young man born in England in 1850. He wants to be a cowboy and makes his way to America, travels from New Orleans to Independence on a steamboat, hires on as a teamster to Santa Fe, then on a cattle drive to Bozeman, Montana. He also rides shotgun on a stagecoach. He travels with a wagon train, and on his two-year journey, he meets some famous people and keeps a journal of his adventures. The book contains a lot of the true stories from my podcast and is now available on Amazon. Visit my webpage for a link to Amazon for the book, Coal Miner to Cowboy. Well, right now, with a turban on his head, riding a camel from Israel and Egypt and all points around that area, Dr. History, good, good morning. morning. Good morning, Zeb. Yes. How are you? I'm good. Glad to be back in America, but I had a great trip, and we're going to talk about that again. You know, we did not even get a chance to cover a tenth of the uh, questions I had about your trip, primarily to go to Israel, right. was it not? Yes. The Holy yes. Land. Yeah, but I want to talk a little bit about Egypt and the pyramids. Yeah, you were astounding me with some things yeah. just a minute ago. So. You know, I've always pictured them uh, being built by slaves. But according to what they've told us, they had around 10,000 workers. They had a place for them to live. They were supplied with food. How do we know all this, by the way? Well, okay, there was a stone called the Rosetta Stone that was discovered, I, oh, when was it? I think in the early 1800s. <coughs> You caught a little bug over there, too, oh, didn't you? sorry, folks. That's all right. Anyway, this Rosetta Stone had three different languages on it. And because of that, they have been able to uh, figure out how to read the hieroglyphics in the pyramids and the different tombs. So they've learned how to read the language of the Egyptians. So it was kind of a translation of everything? Yeah, exactly. So you can read uh, about their battles, uh, stories of their life, their religion, their names. Uh, they know a lot more about them than they did before the discovery of the Rosetta. And this was on the stone. How big is the stone? Oh, you know, I've seen it. Uh, it seemed like it was about three and a half feet across. It's in the British Museum. Really? Yeah. So, but these workers, if you think about it, they had to have, they had to have engineers to be able to build these pyramids with exact specifications, with exact uh, dimensions, and how to quarry the stone out of the quarries, get them to the pyramids, get them stacked in a way that you can't slip a credit card in between two pieces of, of the stone. Now, when we were there, we went down into one of the pyramids of Giza, and we went through this small opening, and we went down, down, down. It was hard to judge. I'm going to say 100 feet or so, and then it leveled out into a flat place, and then we went up another, I'm going to guess, 50 feet or 60. Now, what's it like in there? Just a tunnel. But it's got hieroglyphics on each side. It's got writings. And so when we got to the inside, there was the uh, area where the king was buried, the, where the sarcophagus, where the king was buried. Let me ask you this question. I'm going to interrupt you a okay. lot, okay, because we're going to have to continue this on. But who made the decision to try to open up and get into these pyramids in the first place? Well, 
first of all, some of the pyramids were raided years ago by people that went in there to get the artifacts, the gold, the treasure, things like that. How did they know that there were things in there? Well... That's a good question, because usually, a lot of times, they would kill any of the workers that were involved with it. But somehow, the word got out, and so that's why tombs, some of the tombs, like King Tut's, uh, although King Tut's tomb was not raided, but others were, okay? Like the tombs. Now, the tombs are different than the pyramids. That's a different thing, Mm -hmm. okay? So, but... uh, the exact specifications and how they tunneled these perfectly straight tunnels in and around and these rooms inside where the sarcophagus was, it's just amazing. But well, now, go back to the rocks themselves. I hate to use the term rock. How big are these separate pieces? You know, uh, I'm going to guess some of them were... 15 feet wide by oh uh, 10 feet high. Oh, my. Uh, and I'm not sure how deep because you couldn't see. The but weight. You, right. And how they moved these and, and were able to stack them. Do they have any idea how they did this? Uh, just the thought of that they used, uh, like, sand, uh, um like a a runway to to take them up higher and higher and higher that that's what they figure so they had this long uh kind of ramp made of sand and that's how they got them up higher so, this is amazing to me yeah how tall are they oh i can't remember uh i'm just going to guess uh, what, 300 feet, 400 feet? Oh, my goodness sakes, really? You know, and uh, I, I'm just guessing at that. But Ooh. So I've got to tell you about the, some of the tombs. There was a tomb we went to called Abu Simbel, and it was for Ramses II and his wife, Nefertari. Now, this was carved out of a mountain, okay, carved with tools of some kind. And you go inside, and everything is perfectly straight. There's round columns. There are rooms. There are hieroglyphics on all the walls that tell stories. So a a tomb was uh, kind of a place of worship as well. Now, this Abu Simbel was actually in an area where when they put the dam in, it was going to bury the tomb. So in the 1900s, the the government went in and they cut apart this mountain, this tomb, into pieces and went up higher, like another 100 feet higher, reconstructed that tomb on higher ground. Now, to me, that's a, uh amazing thing that they could take it apart. And they did that with several of these tombs. They took them from a lower area where they would have been buried and reconstructed them up on higher ground. Okay, these Egyptians at that time were so incredibly gifted with engineering skills and labor skills, etc. Do you mean to tell me there's nothing written as to how they did this? There are theories. A lot of theories. And I don't know that the experts even today, you know, you hear thoughts of uh, aliens and, you know, I don't know that they ever do really know. So, but, you know, we went to other temples. There was the Temple of Philae, the Temple of uh, Komombo, the uh, Karnak Temple. 
I mean, that wasn't Johnny Carson, was it? It was not. Oh, okay. <laughs> but we went to the Valley of the Kings, and you drive back in through this. Now, how far an area are we talking about? Okay, now we're up by, right by the Nile River. I see. Okay, we've left Cairo. We're clear up by uh, what they call Luxor and the town of Aswan. Okay. Okay. And here's the tombs of Ramses II, third, the fourth, King Tut's tomb. And uh, the reason it was never discovered until, uh, what, the early 1900s is because another tomb was built kind of on top of it and covered it. But it was discovered by this guy, and so all the treasures were still in there. How did they know for sure it was King Tut? Well, because when they got in there, the hieroglyphics and everything, all the writings, they knew it was him. Did you have somebody on the trip as a guide that oh, could read the we, hieroglyphics? We had a man who had a master's degree in Egyptology. He knew more about Egypt than I will ever begin to know. But we saw King Tut's uh, mummy. That's actually in the tomb, encased in glass. When we went to the Cairo Museum, we saw all of the gold uh, artifacts that were involved with his uh, burial. When you say the mummy, uh, are the facial features and everything, are they fairly close to what the person looked like? You know... They have reconstructed some people, some of those, uh, what they think they actually looked like. But, you know, they're just kind of a dried up looking uh, face. Wouldn't you after 2000 years? Well, I would think so. (laughs) But, uh, you know, another thing we did, we did a hot air balloon ride over the Nile River at sunrise over the by the Valley of the Kings, and when you look down, they are still excavating dozens and dozens of tombs that they haven't even found yet. Oh, you're serious. So there's a lot still yet to be found. So how far is that from the river? Um, I'm going to say maybe a mile. Is there any threat that the Nile, if it it overflowed, would damage all this? Well, because of the dam system, they pretty well keep that under control. I see. How wide is the Nile? Um... I'm going to say, uh, oh gosh, I'm trying to compare it to the Snake River here. I'm going to say twice as wide as the Snake. So that's what, like half mile? Wow. Or so. Okay. But we did a tour uh, on a boat on the, on the Nile, and on each side, it's green for about a half a mile. Then desert, just brown desert sand. So on each side, it's really green and pretty. But after that, and they are learning how to use some of that water. Now, according to the biblical stories of like uh, Moses, etc., did they point out where they thought he was put into the uh, basket and floated down? Not really. That's They really don't know. But let me tell you about another place we went to called Petra. And folks, you may have, anybody that's seen the Indiana Jones uh, Search of the Holy Grail, when they go riding into that, through that uh, narrow canyon, okay, on the horses, Hmm. they go riding in and riding out of there. That's exactly what it looks like. And uh, Petra was a... uh, a trade town. They had about 20,000 people living there. Really? And what you see is the the treasury. Now, we couldn't go inside, but there are a lot more carvings and just like the temple or the treasury all throughout that area. And the water supply was five miles away. It's on the Silk Road. It was a trade city. And there are a lot more of those uh, carvings, but they're in sandstone. And our guide told us that 
with time, those are going to gradually deteriorate because of weather, earthquakes. Can they put like any that. kind of chemicals on those to preserve them at they, all? He didn't say that they could. I see. But uh, there again, the craftsmanship, how they carved those perfectly symmetrical uh, columns and uh, the different animals and pictures that are on these uh, on the the carvings of Petra. So I guess if we're really uh, infatuated with Mount Rushmore, the Egyptians did things far more back 2,000 years ago. It was amazing what they did. Now, I did talk, I think, last week about uh, Qumran, which is a town uh, near where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. Right. These Dead Sea Scrolls are on display in Jerusalem, and we saw them. You, you saw actually, the real the, the Dead real, Sea Scrolls. Which are basically writings from the Bible and more. Where did they find them? Give a little bit more elaboration. Okay, they on were this. found in some small caves in some kind of, I, I want to say kind of some mountains, uh, um, right near the Dead Sea. And right in, last week I talked about the place called Masada. Yeah. So it's right near the Dead Sea. Uh, that's where they found these scrolls. Scrolls. And they were in what? These uh, jars, like clay jars. Really? Yeah. And they've been preserved all these years. So, oh my! And now, is it actually scrolls like parchment right. that they? Yes, parchment that they open up that they were written on. They must know? have been absolutely brittle, though, weren't they? Well, not that bad. Surprisingly, so you were, saw the originals. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So another. Let me talk about another thing that uh, there's a place we went to. Uh, I'm kind of skipping around, but there was a place up uh, by Jerusalem we went to called Caesarea Maritima. Okay, this was a a man-made seaport on the Mediterranean built by Herod the Great. It had a... Herod, by the way, was not so great. He tended to kill anybody that threatened him. But this is the largest Mediterranean seaport at the time that was man-made. There was a big amphitheater. There was a big hippodrome where they did chariot races. They did. They had gladiator fighting there. But this is the place I found really interesting where the Apostle Paul traveled in and out of this port and at one time was imprisoned there in Caesarea Maritima. And the Apostle Peter actually preached to Cornelius and his family, who were the first Gentiles to be preached to at that time. So to me, that was uh, kind of a special place to think that here was two of the apostles that actually traveled in and out of of this place. What kind of an area is it? Very dry, very desert area? Yes, very deserty. What Uh, did they grow to eat? Uh, You know, figs and grape, or figs and things like that. But uh, yeah, very deserty. But as I mentioned last week, as we got up out of that area and headed north more towards Jordan, uh, that's when things started getting green and lush and beautiful. Um, In fact, uh, I found fascinating that a lot of the crops, the sugar beets, or not sugar beets, the uh, uh, sugar cane, and the grapes are covered with nets, uh, acres and acres of nets covering these. The reason that for that is because this valley is what they call the flyway, which means there are about a half a billion birds that fly back and forth between Africa and Europe through this area. Really? And if they don't cover these crops, the birds will come down and eat the crops. Yeah. 
But, so, you know, we've only got a couple of minutes left. We're going to have to do this again next week. But take us, if you will, uh, the biblical aspect of everything you saw and everywhere you went. I mean, I'm just sitting there, and I feel so humbled and so small uh, of being there where Christ and the apostles walked on the face of the earth. Right. Uh, that I must can, have been amazing. Uh, yes. I can say that uh, when we got to Galilee, and we... Uh, went out early in the morning on a boat on the Sea of Galilee. And it surprised me how large the Sea of Galilee really is. And that's near where? Uh, that's near Jerusalem. Near Jerusalem. Yeah, yeah. Near, not too far right. from Nazareth. Right. But the Sea of Galilee, that's where you know Jesus uh, left Nazareth and would walk down by the Sea of Galilee. Right. And that's where a lot of the teachings, uh, when you read about uh, in the New Testament. So now... When you read, when I read the New Testament or even the Old Testament, I can picture the places where things happened. For example, I can now picture the valley where David killed Goliath. Oh my goodness! Because there's this large, beautiful green. Uh, it's of course uh, crops now, uh, but on one side is this kind of mountain, and that's where the uh, is Israelites were camped, and then on the opposite side is where the Philistines were camped. And there's a small stream that runs right along there where David would have gone down into to pick up five or six pebbles to go out and face Goliath. So So is this Sea of Galilee, is it a locked-in body of water, or is it fed? Oh, no, it's fed by the Jordan River uh, and... Uh, the Dan River and another river that flow into the Sea of Galilee, and then it flows out and flows down to the Dead Sea. Oh. And the Dead Sea is 1,300 feet below sea level, and it's 1,300 feet deep. So that is the lowest place on earth oh my it really is yeah yeah Yeah, we floated in there and you don't swim in the dead sea you just kind of float when you were on this trip and it must have been so amazing how many people were with you we had two busloads of people two busloads yeah i bet you there wasn't a i bet you there wasn't anybody making a whimper they were all probably recording and writing and taking pictures and amazing we were like say we had the best guides you could find and one of our uh, guides was a man I've known for years and he has done that trip 39 times so he knew where to go how to get there and our bus drivers you've probably seen pictures of Jerusalem these narrow streets there was a point where another bus was coming the other way and he was going slow but he missed my my window by probably an inch <laughs> With his mirror. Did you get the feeling, and last question, I've only got two minutes, uh, get the feeling uh, as you took along, I'm sure, a Bible, and that at night after what you had seen, probably read and referenced it in the Bible, did you ever sit back in the chair and go, wow? Yes, because, uh, again, over the years, reading the Bible, you picture in your mind what things look like. Yeah, yeah. And now to actually see it, and for example... Around Jerusalem, uh, Galilee, I'd always pictured that, uh, and Armageddon, I'd always pictured that as just desert, just nothing fertile. But it's not. It's green. It's beautiful. There's farm ground, uh, irrigation, uh, uh, the valley of uh, where the Armageddon is. It's just a, you can see for miles, it's just green. You said little, that you saw a lot of sheep herders tending their yeah. flocks and everything just like they would have. Yeah, exactly. That was also fascinating because you'd see them on the hillside with their shepherds just like they would have been 2,000 years ago. 
please come back next week and say this again. I got to go over this one more time because there's so many more questions I've got. Okay, we can do that. There's again some things we can talk about that uh, you know that again people that have never been there. Maybe this will help open your eyes just a little and, bit. And I think it goes without saying you're glad you made the trip. I am absolutely happy that we did that. Uh, there's things going on there now that I'm glad I'm not there yeah. right now. Yeah. How safe, quickly, is the area, or do you think it will be maintained safe, or is it very precarious right now? I think right now it's a little bit precarious, but I think it'll settle down again, and people will be able to go there again like we did. Uh, we just happen to be there during Ramadan, Easter, and uh, the Passover. Passover. So you had three religions kind of vying for space on the Temple Mount. Wow. Quickly, most important part of the trip, the most awestruck you were. What was it? Real quick. I've got to say probably the garden tomb. The garden tomb. Yep. Let's talk about that next okay. week. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.